0: The views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence if investing. The show is pre-recorded. Everyday Wealth is produced and created by Edelman Financial Engines and hosted by Jean Chatsky. Ms. Chatsky is not an employee or client of the firm. She receives fixed cash compensation as host and for related activities, and therefore has an incentive to endorse Edelman Financial Engines and its planners. For additional information, please see www.edelmanfinancialengines.com/slash/everydaywealth. The 2022 Top 100 Independent Advisory Firm ranking issued by Barons is qualitative and quantitative including assets managed by the firm, technology spending, staff diversity, succession planning, and other metrics. Firms elect to participate but do not pay to be included in the ranking. Compensation is paid for use and distribution of rating. Awarded September 2022 based on data within a 12-month period. Investor experience and returns are not considered. At the intersection of life and money, this is Edelman Financial Engines' Everyday Wealth with personal finance expert Gene Chatsky. Edelman Financial Engines has been ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. Now, here's Gene Chatsky.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Gene Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining me today on Everyday Wealth. Believe it or not, there are some people who are cynical about investing. It's true. And there are quite a few of them who think, historical evidence notwithstanding, that the stock market is too dangerous a place to put your hard earned money. You have probably heard someone in your life say something like this before. The stock market is like a casino. It's like gambling. Are they right? Well, that depends on your approach. Growing up, at least for me, and I'm sure that many of you can relate to this, gambling wasn't something you heard all that much about. For most of the past century, outside of horse racing, legalized gambling was restricted to Nevada, most notably to Vegas. It wasn't till 1978 that the first legal casino outside Nevada opened. I remember this because we have always been a Jersey Shore family in the summer. And this was in good old Atlantic City, New Jersey. But it wasn't alone for long. By the mid nineties, nine additional states had legalized casino gambling. Then in 2018, the Supreme Court ruled that sports betting could be legalized on a state by state basis. And now in 2023, just five years later. Two-thirds of the country offers legalized sports betting, and more states are likely to come online in the next few years. So what have we seen in terms of an economic impact? Well, here's a staggering number for all of you. In just those same five years, Americans have wagered over $245 billion, with a B, dollars on sporting events. That's just legal Betting, And it's not just sports betting that's everywhere. Some form of legalized gambling is available in 48 states plus the District of Columbia. You want to take a guess or maybe place a bet on the two that don't have it? Utah and Hawaii. Approximately 85% of U.S. adults have gambled at least once in their lives. 60% have done so in the past year. And Here is the concerning part. There are some studies that suggest there's a link between gambling and stock market speculation. So to dig into this issue with me and the dangers that speculative investing can pose for your long-term security, Isabel Barrow is here. She's a wealth planner, of course, with Edelman Financial Engines. Welcome back. Nice to
2: see you. You too. It's always great to be here.
1: You're a market watcher. I have learned that about you. Obviously, you've got your finger on the pulse of what is going on with retail investors. Have you seen their behavior change in the past few years?
2: Well, I mean, yes and no. There's really no doubt that over the past few years, there has been a pretty major spike in more speculative investing, more speculative products like stock options, for example, which, though widely used, can be very, very risky. Retail option trading increased over tenfold from about 20 billion in 2010 to about 240 billion by 2020. So, you know, then we had COVID. So when COVID hit, there was really actually an increase in retail investors participating in the stock market for the first time during that pandemic. And all of the numbers seem to show that the the pandemic itself coincided with the dramatic rise in retail investors participating in the options market. In fact, in 2020 alone, retail investors accounted for more than 250 billion of the single stock option volume.
1: Yeah, and you saw a lot of headlines actually talking about this, particularly in regards to meme stocks, for example, and to young investors entering the market. What else do you think it was though that that happened with COVID and market participation? Were we just all bored?
2: Well, I think that, yeah, I mean, yeah, basically that we were bored and people were were used to spending their time maybe watching sporting events or going, you know, activities. And in, in the case of sporting events that were slowed down or stopped in, in some cases altogether, people weren't gambling on those anymore. So they kind of maybe needed to scratch that itch. And so the market became in a form of gambling for them. And so that's one of the theories is that there was just nothing to bet on. And the stock market sort of ended up filling that void. And they had stimulus checks. Well, absolutely. They had maybe a little bit more money on their hands. They had more time on their hands. Maybe they weren't sitting in front of their work computer. They had their personal computer available to do their stock investing on um, or quote unquote, you know, stock investing, maybe more like gambling. So essentially the stock market became that form of gambling. And so if you think back to 2020 and 2021, what were, you know, the big investments in those days where we t- people were talking all the time about SPACs, right. right? Special purpose acquisition companies or the meme stocks, the GameStop, the AMC, crypto, you know, crypto. Bitcoin was up over 300% in 2020, hit an all time high in 2021. What about NFTs? Mm hmm. You know, yeah. you heard about that all constantly and CryptoPunks or Bored Ape Yacht Club. Charlie Munger, who, along with his partner Warren Buffett, has been one of the most successful, if not the most successful long-term investor, likened this sort of speculation to gambling or maybe even an addiction.
1: And then there was the OG, right, of speculative investing. And, and a lot of that was going on day trading, Right.
2: Absolutely. I mean, even before the pandemic, we were seeing more and more people using brokerage apps that were easily accessible, like on their phone, right? Like Robinhood, for example, because, you know, it's mobile, it's easy, there's no commissions, it removed any friction they had in the trading process. So it made it so much easier and more fun to do. Basically investing became similar to the way that they would have otherwise been gambling or betting on sports or or whatever it was. So they were sort of in essence turning the market into their own casino. So it had the effect of of encouraging investors to be more active and that's what we then saw even more so during the pandemic was an increase in that day trading activity. But even after the pandemic, that risk taking behavior by day traders hasn't really slowed down, interestingly. So, there was a, an article recently in the Wall Street Journal mm-hmm. that referenced the popularity recently of what are called zero DTE or O DTE. And so, what that stands for is zero days to expiration options, super short term options, like options with very little time until maturity or until expiration. So the article went on to say that about 27% of options trades, which are, as we mentioned before, typically considered highly speculative, potentially very risky, well, 27% of those are done by individual investors, which is another word for that way of them saying like rookie investors, people that are not, you know, these are not professional investors. These are more day trader types. And they referenced an article from the London Business School that most options traders lose money. And between November of 19 and June of 2021, that those losses might've been as high as 2.1 billion for options trades.
1: I I mean, it's amazing to me that this continues at the pace at which it continues because it's not the only research out there. There have been studies that show that 97% of day traders lose money. So for those of us who are not playing in these waters, and who are concerned with our long-term financial security. How does all of this speculation that's happening around us impact that?
2: Well, the reality is it could have the unintended effect of... Creating more volatility in the market. You know, in some ways it may even out volatility, in other ways it may increase volatility in the market. But as it relates to you as an investor, the most obvious way is if you're constantly looking for that short-term gain, right? Mm-hmm. That get rich quick scheme, right? And and you're doing so and thinking that your investments are going to do that for you, it's really undermining your ability to think longer term, right? About what is this investment going to do, not in the next five minutes or the next five days, but really what is it gonna do for me over my lifetime? And if you're thinking in that really short window, you're certainly not thinking about this as it relates to your longer term plan, which is really the important factor as we think about investing, not speculating.
1: What are some signs that even if you don't realize it, you have fallen into some bad speculative habits?
2: Well, I think let's just kind of start with do you consider this to be entertainment and something that you are doing, you know, for fun in your free time? Or is this something that you're looking at from a longer term perspective, thinking about it with reasonable expectations of long term returns? And so when I say reasonable, I mean, you know, five to seven percent returns over the long term. Or are you constantly thinking about this as I want to beat the market, you know, or I'm trying to exceed returns of some multiplier, right? Another is, you know, if you're utilizing money that would otherwise be your cash reserve, right? Mm-hmm. Your emergency fund, and you're saying, well, but I'm going to take this and I'm going to double it, right? It's like, why not just buy a lottery ticket? I mean, it's you're taking similar amounts of risk if you don't have an asset allocation strategy. So I think a lot of people that are day trading or a lot of people that are investors or, or gamblers or speculators that are day trading... They're not thinking about their overall asset allocation strategy, meaning they're not you're not thinking about, well, am I buying the right proportion of large cap, mid cap, small cap stocks and then international and and fixed income and et cetera, et cetera? Or are they just sort of looking at the investment in and of itself and hoping that that investment will outperform everything else? So, you know, having an asset allocation strategy is an investment strategy. Right. And that is separate from a speculative strategy. So I think another sign that you might be more of a speculator than an investor is if you have a lot of your net worth tied up in concentrated stock positions. So do you have just a handful of stocks or maybe a dozen and that's it, right? Those are concentrated positions. So that is maybe akin more to speculating than it is to investing because in order to invest the long-term, you've got to be really diversified, extensively diversified. Are you trading every day? That's a bad sign. You know, are you always worried about your portfolio? Do you have goals that are not based on a financial plan, but rather just returns at the end of the day? Those can all be signs that your so-called investing is really more like gambling. I've
1: got one more to add to your list. If you have taken a ticker and you've made it your home screen, right? I mean, if you're just checking all the time to see how you're doing, that is causing your blood to boil a little bit too much. And I think that's dangerous as well. Um, great list. Isabel, thanks so much for filling us in. And we've talked, Isabel, about the dangers of speculation. Now, let's just juxtapose that with how you and your colleagues at Edelman Financial Engines help put your clients on a solid financial foundation. And to do that, let's bring in another one of your colleagues, Dr. Wei Hu. He is the vice president of financial research for Edelman Financial Engines. Wei, always great to have you back.
3: Great to be here, Jean.
1: So you heard Isabel talk about some of the stats around gambling and around speculation. Are they bothersome to you, disconcerting in any way?
3: Yeah, all of the above. So, um, you know, this is sort of a part of human beings, right? So, you know, people are, they come to the world with different levels of financial education. That's one thing. But there's also emotion involved. So even the smartest people fall victim to gambling or speculative habits when it comes to investing. So people shouldn't feel ashamed that they fall into these traps. So it's very natural. But the emotion part is, it's a very tempting lure, and we all feel it from time to time. And, you know, when you look at financial markets, if you look at the daily news, you see the market goes up or the market goes down, and there's always an explanation for why it happened uh, after the fact. And so it seems like it's very predictable. And so people fall into this trap of feeling like, well... I could predict it too. It all makes sense. You know, I just need to educate myself and then I'll know which way the market's headed. And then they get into the trap of trying to predict the day-to-day movements of the markets.
1: I have always been very struck by the fact that we report on the markets the very same way we report on sports. It feels like the same language. It feels like the same cadence. I have a theory that good sports journalists will also be good business journalists because it's kind of the same rat-a-tat way of writing. But when it comes right down to it, it's different. And sports seems a lot more predictive in... In a way that investing for the long term is just not that simple.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I think that what the the trap that people fall into when they look at the news and think it's predictable is that they don't understand that the way that markets work is that the prices of stocks and bonds on any given day are reacting to new information, and that new information. It's news, which means it's a surprise by definition. It's not something that a person could have predicted a week ago or even the day before. And so because it's unpredictable, you can't also predict the direction of the market on a given day. And so people fall into this trap again of thinking that it is predictable when really, by definition, the market's reactions on any given day are reacting to surprise information.
1: And it's not just about the market. It's about you as an investor and your personal financial goals. So I could make an investment based on what I think is going to happen in the market and be right, but it could still be the wrong investment for me.
3: That's a great point. So, you know, investing is not the end goal. It's really uh, a means to an end. And the the goal is, To provide for your financial future whether it's your retirement or your kids college education or other goals and so you really have to start with well what is the money for and that starts getting into questions of well do i want to generate income from this pool of money or do i want it to grow for some future goals it may be even for an inheritance that could be very far into the future and those things really determine what should be in that portfolio
2: Way, can you talk us through some of the criteria that's used to determine if an investment fits into a portfolio?
3: Yeah, so uh, at a very basic level, and it gets complicated the more you, you dig into this, but at a basic level, we look at what's the risk, how does it diversify against the rest of the portfolio, so don't look at an investment in isolation, but look at it as part of a portfolio, and what's the expected return of that investment? In some cases, for some investments, you might also have to worry about the liquidity of that investment. So for things like private equity or private debt, uh, you can't trade them from day to day, and you have to match that with your time horizon.
2: And the point you made about estimated expected return, we say estimated because we know past performance is no guarantee of future results. But this idea of an estimated expected return versus reasonable risk is where a lot of speculative types of investments fail the test.
3: That's right. So there's, there's probably a lot of examples we could talk about here, but let's take one, for example, uh, currency futures. So with currency futures, they might meet some of the criteria, like they diversify a portfolio because they don't move in tandem with regular stocks and bonds. And you might think that there is a reasonable risk associated with these, or you can control how much risk you take. But then the question is, well, what's the expected return of currency movements? So do you expect the euro versus the dollar to appreciate over the next five or 10 years? Why do you expect that to be the case? You know, we don't really think of currencies as necessarily having a long-term direction, right? So there's another example would be gold. Why do you expect gold to appreciate long-term? There might be other reasons that people might hold gold, which may or may not really hold up when you look at the data. And then another example would be with commodities, other commodities, like uh, you look at the price of oil. Do you expect it to go up over time? It could, but it could also go down. So when you look at the technology innovations like fracking, it radically reduced the cost of drilling oil in what were difficult areas before that. And it reduced the U.S.'s reliance on oil imports, which is amazing to somebody who who looked at this maybe 20 or 30 years ago. So the long-term direction of these things uh, as commodities doesn't meet that expected return test like stocks do. So when you look at stocks, for example— The reason you expect them to go up is because they're based on the earnings of American companies or even international companies. And as long as you expect a basket of those companies to make profits over the long term, then you can expect the prices of those stocks to generally go up.
1: Let me ask you something. I think when many people hear us say the name Edelman Financial Engines, they think to themselves, what is this financial engine part? But it it plays a role in the sort of portfolio construction that you do. And I, I think it would be helpful to just take us through it a little bit.
3: Yeah. So what are the engines? So the engines are a way of making the investing problem more systematic and doing it on a scale that we can do it thousands of times. So, and that's what a car engine does. It allows you to do one repetitive thing over and over again, a very complex thing to move yourself at 60 miles an hour, but and the engine can drive you hundreds of thousands of miles, right? So the portfolio problem is a complicated one because, you know, a minute ago, I talked about risk, diversification, and expected return. It quickly gets more complicated when you look at individual elements of that. So when you talk about risk, you have to think about, well, what's the source of risk? What asset classes is a given investment coming from uh, or investing in? And then what's the specific risk of that investment above and beyond what asset classes it's invested in? That requires some modeling, and we use our engines to model that. But we also look at, on the expected return side, things like, what's the expense of an investment? What's the manager track record of that investment? What are the tax implications of holding these investments? So there's a lot of data points that we look at and, you know, other shops that don't use software engines could rely on individual portfolio managers to make these very complicated trade-offs. And really it requires very complicated math to do all this. So what we're doing is we're analyzing more than 38,000 different investments. All of them can be unique. And we're looking at which ones make sense for different individual portfolios. So we're using our engines to make the math systematic, not based on our emotions on a given time of day and do that repeatedly. So we're using our engines to create portfolios, many of them unique to one person to apply our consistent philosophy, but on a very personalized basis.
2: I love how you explained it, Wei, because I I feel like it gives our listeners really a look behind the curtain, right, to understand kind of what's going on behind our investment strategy. And it really ties into kind of the foundation of the four key points of our investment philosophy. And so what I like to tell clients is when the question is, what's the investment philosophy, right? What's your strategy at Edelman Financial Engines? I say, look, we start with extensive diversification and asset allocation that's based on their unique circumstances, their specific situation. And we don't time the market. We take a long-term approach for their long-term money. Then we rebalance as needed, not on a, a time basis. It's not that we do it once a quarter. We do it when it's needed. So that rebalancing. And the last is that we use low-cost funds within our portfolios whenever possible so that you're able to keep more of what you earn. And of course, we do this all with a potentially tax-sensitive approach if needed, if warranted, right, given your situation. So these investment management strategies become even more powerful when they're part of the integrated approach to wealth management. At Edelman Financial Engines, we combine things like your investment management strategies with looking at your retirement planning, your, your tax planning, your estate planning long-term, even insurance guidance, right? Long-term care planning for your overall comprehensive financial goals. Um, and, and all of that, of course, is unique to you as an individual.
1: So, Isabel, if people are listening and thinking, uh,
2: this sounds good, what's the next step? well to reach out to us you know either call at 1833 plan efe or you can go to our website at edelmanfinancialengines.com and ask to speak with a planner you know somebody either local to you or we have national planners um, but you know the first step is to reach out there's no strings attached you know see if see if what we do matches what help you're looking for thank you for that isabel way thanks for being here it's always good to have you in
3: studio always a pleasure
1: We are going to take a very quick break. Everybody, when we come back, we'll bring on a special guest who's an expert on gaming and problem gambling. She's going to tell us a little bit more about the impact of legalized sports betting and gaming in general, as well as the warning signs that may indicate that somebody, you know, has a gambling problem. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Are you worried about the current volatility of the market? Inflation rates? Talk of a recession? Are you second-guessing your investment decisions? What better time than now to ensure your finances are moving forward than by getting an expert second opinion from an Edelman Financial Engines planner? Whether you already have a planner or simply need a new perspective, they can help you manage your wealth plan to both weather the volatility of the market today and help you protect and preserve it over the long term. To schedule your complimentary wealth checkup today, call 833-PLAN-EFE. That's 833 Or visit their website at efewealthplanners.com. Put your uncertainties to rest once and for all. Schedule your complimentary wealth checkup right now. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for sticking with us. I want to welcome Dr. Rachel Volberg to the show. She is currently a research professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and she's been involved in epidemiological research on gambling and problem gambling since 1985. She's also directed or consulted on a number of gambling studies throughout the world and In 1988, she was the first investigator to receive funding from the NIH to study the prevalence of problem gambling in the general population. Dr. Volberg, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here.
4: Thank you for having me.
1: How big an issue is problem gambling in the United States?
4: So the proportion of people in the adult population who would meet diagnosis for a gambling disorder is about 1%. Uh, My own view is that gambling problems affect about 2% of the adult population. And certainly that's what we found here in Massachusetts where I live. Uh, There's another 8% of people who we deem to be at risk of developing a, a problem with their gambling. And of course, it's important to understand that each problem gambler affects a number of other people. We estimate between six and 10 other people. So in fact, gambling harms can be quite widespread. What, what does it mean exactly to have
1: a gambling problem?
4: So there's two components to a gambling problem. The first component is an individual sort of loses their ability to control their gambling involvement So they get uh, very preoccupied with gambling. They chase their losses. They develop what we call withdrawal and tolerance, which is something that's more commonly understood with substance use and alcohol, but also relates to gambling problems. So there's that one element of loss of control. And the other important component is experiencing harms related to one's involvement in gambling. And that can range from personal health issues to relationship issues to certainly financial uh, difficulties, all the way out to affecting one's workplace or one's community.
1: And and when you talk about that percentage of the population, I think you said 6%, Uh, that is at risk of developing a gambling problem? Who are those people?
4: So those are people who are gambling at a level that is leading them to neglect other important areas of their life. So someone can be deeply involved in gambling and not experience a problem, but if someone is doing a lot of gambling, a lot of different types of gambling, is spending a lot of money as well as time, that can put them at risk for developing a gambling problem without actually tipping them over the edge.
1: We talked a a lot at the top of the show about the spread of gambling in this country, how it's grown in the past few decades, legalized sports gambling and sports betting. How has the proliferation of gambling changed uh, both the industry, but also the landscape of problem gamblers? Uh,
4: Well, so if you're talking about sports betting specifically, that expansion is actually rather new. Uh, it only started in the United States really in 2018 when the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act was overturned by the Supreme Court. And we uh, saw a large number of states jump into legalizing sports betting so that at this point there are over 40 states where sports betting is already operating. But if you're talking about sort of a longer term arc, which it sounds like you are, um, we've had a number of waves of gambling introduction in the United States. The first one, which I wasn't around for, but Sort of observed the tail end of uh, was the expansion of lotteries mm-hmm. in the 1970s and 80s, um, followed by the expansion of casino gambling, initially driven by the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, which allowed tribes to conduct casino style gambling on their lands, and followed by a large number of states that legalized commercial casinos. So, you know, it depends on sort of what well, time it, period you're talking about.
1: If we're talking about the spread over time of of not just sports gambling, but all sorts of gambling, has the spread caused more problems for more people?
4: So the short answer is, yes, it has. But there's a, a bit of a misunderstanding about gambling availability and accessibility in relation to... Uh, the proportion of the population that has gambling problems. So it's widely assumed that um, the more you expand the types of gambling that are available to people, the higher the prevalence rate will go. And that, in fact, is not what we've seen. What we have seen historically in the United States is an expansion, for instance, of casino gambling, followed by a noticeable increase in the prevalence rate of problem gambling followed by declines in gambling participation followed by declines in problem gambling prevalence so we've actually seen you know changes both up and down in the recent history in the united states
1: We talk a lot on this show about how you can't really control the economy, but you can try to control your own personal economy. And so in that vein, if you know somebody that you think has a gambling problem or you suspect you might have a gambling problem yourself or you know that you do, what are the steps to take to get some help?
4: There is help available for people with gambling problems, and that help can be very effective. So the first thing that many people do, and I do this for other things, not because I have a gambling problem, but there's a lot in the way of self-help resources. So you can look at the National Council's website and call their helpline. There are state helplines that you can call. There are state councils on problem gambling that offer self-help resources. And actually that's the most frequent source of help that people who are experiencing difficulties with their gambling actually seek out. There's also state treatment that's provided by professionals. In a number of cases, uh, states will provide funding to the professional treatment providers so that the individual problem gambler doesn't have to pay out of pocket. There's also many, many gambling operators and gambling regulators in the country that offer self-exclusion programs. So those are sort of the steps that, you know, you would want to follow in terms of look for self-help first and resources. And of course, after sort of putting all of those things in place, and if you're in recovery, then Gamblers Anonymous is also another important resource to keep in mind. Last question,
1: we were speaking earlier in the show about the similarities and differences between speculation in the stock market, in speculation with your investments and gambling. Do you think or know of a correlation? Can you draw a line straight or dotted between the two?
4: Well, As a gambling researcher, uh, looking at speculative investing, I certainly view it as a close relative to gambling. There is, in legal terms, it's not considered to be an overlap, but in the view of people who uh, live in the gambling research world, there's a pretty close correlation.
1: Dr. Volberg, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for helping us uh, wrap our hands around this issue.
4: Okay, thank you for having me.
1: And that is it for this show. I wanna thank Dr. Volberg, also Isabel Barrow and Dr. Wei Hu for being here. If you've got questions about your financial plan and you wanna make sure your portfolio is aligned with your long-term goals, Give the folks at Edelman Financial Engines a call. Talk with one of our planners who can help you make the best financial decisions for you and for your future. And be sure to subscribe to Everyday Wealth wherever you stream your favorite podcasts or just visit us at everydaywealth.com where all of our episodes are available to you. Thanks again, and we'll talk soon.
0: You've been listening to Edelman Financial Engines Everyday Wealth with Gene Chatsky. Edelman Financial Engines has been ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. If you've missed an episode or are interested in additional personal finance topics, be sure to subscribe to the Everyday Wealth Podcast. Our podcast library offers helpful insights on topics such as tax-efficient portfolios, retirement withdrawal strategies, investing, and financial planning, to name just a few. To learn more, visit our website, everydaywealth.com, or find our show wherever you stream your favorite podcast.